Hey, I'm Pastor Dave Ferguson. Welcome to Crosswalk Chattanooga's Weekend Teaching Podcast. We're glad you're with us. This is our final day of our final Sabbath and teaching of the Little Letters. By the way, one little apology before we get going any further. Last week I made a very bold claim uh, that uh, we would have our podcast up and running if you wanted to pay attention to the teachings here in Chattanooga. We would have them all backdated uh, to May 20 and made that claim. Then on Monday, out came an Instagram post that said, hey, they're all up there. And indeed it was. And then something happened. And uh, yeah, they were all kind of not just taken down, they were erased by something that happened. And, but they're back now, okay? So they are back. Apologies for those of you that attempted to check into something that was suddenly not available and it sounded like we were pulling your leg on something. It's, it's all there now. But we're glad that you're here as we continue and conclude our series on the little letters, these three little books written by John. First, second, and third John. And so today, the final of these three letters, third John, third John. John uh, writes this book. He will call himself the elder. There are some other people, uh, there there are some, some scholars who believe that it was written by somebody else or they would argue with this, but... Uh, we, I think, can, can accept that John writes these letters as he describes himself as the elder. He is 90 to 100 years old. This is the last, believed last book written in the New Testament. This third book of John, this little tiny letter. It's the shortest of all the letters, not by verse number, but by how many words are in it. It's the smallest little letter in the Bible. And so we get into this particular letter, the elder, John, written to my dear friend, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Gaius, there's another or two other Gaius is referred to in scripture, but this is not believed to be the same guy. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Which, by the way, if you are uh, maybe expecting child, and it is going to be a boy, and you're wondering, hey, what name could I... What name could I pick that's relatively untaken? Gaius, I think, is probably one of them that you could consider. Um, it was apparently a fairly common name in Roman culture. And so here, John writes to this young friend who apparently, apparently he has participated in this young man's journey with Jesus, maybe initiated it, maybe it was a part of his story, John's, in working with and launching this church that this young man believes in Jesus Christ. So it's in that context he goes on, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. This apparently was a fairly common kind of greeting at that time in that culture. I will say, just a tiny little side note, you're well aware there are individuals who in their circle of faith would say to you that if you follow Jesus Christ, if you truly give your life, your heart to Jesus, if your soul is well with God, that this, along with other places in scripture, this is a pledge God makes to you, a promise God makes to you that if you follow him, you will be in good health. If you follow him, you will have the job you want. Magically, she will say yes to marriage, I guess. Which could be worse for her than for you. It's a, it's a crazy notion. 
And by the way, it's especially dangerous because that, that would connect them the flip side of that to be true. That if your child is lost in a car accident tragically, it must be that their soul was not right with God. If the doctor tells you you don't have long, apparently God's done with you. If all your neighbors make more than you do, and on and on that theology trips and seems to ignore that the one we follow was tortured, beaten, and died, and says, take up a cross and follow me. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a way in which this would be true. That all would be, if, I, if my soul is well with Jesus, all is well. Because see, if my soul is well with Jesus, you could kill me and it's still well. If my soul is well with Jesus, I'm not dependent on the economy or the political structure or the weather. See, that's the disciples, the early believers, the early Christian church, where many of them were dying for their faith, would say, yeah, but it's well. See, because I saw a guy you killed, risen to life, and that's the guy I'm following. Yeah, what are you going to do, kill me? (laughs) Good luck to you. Because it is well. Uh, Just a little, that little, sorry, side trip. You'd have a hard time, it just feels to me, reading scripture in any kind of fullness and thinking that trouble doesn't come to followers of Christ. Maybe especially so. But here he says it in a greeting. I'm hoping, I'm cheering, I would love for your health to be great too, as your soul is well. And he goes on, it gives me just incredible and great joy to hear. Some of the brothers have come and they tell me about your faithfulness. I don't know if you've ever tried to mentor somebody in a certain area and then had somebody else tell you this great glowing thing about, how about one of your children? Yeah? Oh man, I just got to say, your son, your daughter, I've never been around a teenager that works that hard. That's amazing. (laughs) You got, what was their name? You sure you, yeah? Okay, good. It's me. It's me. I did that. (laughs) And so John is saying, you know, I poured my heart, my love, and, and watched you become a young man in Jesus. And it just fills my heart when others come and share their perspective on how you're doing. I just, I I feel like I'm glowing. But how you're faithful in the truth. And if you've read all these three letters, you know that in the truth means that you have excelled in being able to love other people. How you continue to walk in this truth. I have no greater joy, John says. There's not a joy in my life that's bigger than to hear of one of my children walking in the truth. And of course, we know John, John had, he talks, he says, 
beloved on occasion, but he also says my beloved children with regularity, the children of his faith as he has poured himself out. Now I just wanna also pause here and just say, look, could there be anything better, anything better than when we are able to participate in a child knowing Jesus and their journey? Could there be anything? Look, yeah, let's not be cagey about this. This is a community that has pledged, we will pour our heart and soul into our children. We will spend our last dime and our last drop of sweat. And by the way, uh, how many of you are Smart Start students? Anybody here? Yeah, I know I've met some of you. Yeah. You're in the right place at the right time. I'm not going to use that word children because that feels, you know, younger than you are. We will. (laughs) But we want to say this too. We are ready to pour ourselves out for our college students coming to this campus. And parents, as you're here to drop your son, your daughter off, know this, this is your home. However often you're here, welcome home. Because it fills us, there could be no greater joy than that we get to participate in the faith of our sons and our daughters. You're in the right place. John goes on to say this, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. What's going on here? Well, what he's getting into now is this situation that along the way, preachers would come. They would support these churches and find their way through. But these were people who were spending themselves often at risk of being persecuted and without making money, they were finding their way there and so they were dependent on the love and the care and the hospitality of the people with whom they would find their way to preach and teach. And so John is saying, oh look, the other bit of news that keeps coming back to me is, hey, everybody is saying, going through your town, finding time in your church, passing by Your coffee station is the best they'll ever get because you take care of people. And these who are often risking and spending themselves in ways they can't take care of themselves in some cases, but they've told the church about your love. You would do well. You would send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That's how, hey, listen. If we could be judged by how well we take care of people, that what we are about is worthy of God. What if the world around us, some young freshman this year is going to decide whether there even is a God based on how well you and I take care of them? (laughs) How about that person who just does not, cannot believe there is a God, but can't help but think, if God is as good as these people, I hope he's real. (laughs) Ah, how good is that? John says it's for the sake of the name that these individuals have gone out, that they have served, and they've decided not to lean on, not to try to depend on 
non-believers, but rather on the hospitality of believers. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that they may work together for the truth. We ought care about the people who are lifting up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not just a preacher on a stage nor a musician singing songs. It goes all around a building like this and into our community. We ought care. Hey, some of us are visitors here and that's fine. You can listen as a visitor while knowing our invitation is that you come, step over the line, come all the way in. We welcome you. There is something God is calling you to and it falls under this heading of holding up with hospitality the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way, somehow. And right about here, the letter turns a little weird. Okay. John says, so I wrote to the church. Now, I'm not talking about 1 John. I'm not talking about 2 John. I wrote another letter to the church. And Diotrephes, Diotrephes, also a guy's name that is very little used. So if you're looking. Diotrephes, Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. He's essentially saying, I wrote you a letter, and it was intercepted by Diotrephes. Can you imagine being Diotrephes in this particular day? Go, you just, you're, you're at church, and somebody says, hey, guy steps up. He says, I got a letter from Brother John, the elder. And it says, by the way, it's one of these one, weird moments where John said more than just little children love one another. He has something else here. He, he, he says, hey, uh, by the way, you may not have heard it, but I wrote you a, a, another letter. But Diotrephes... Uh, will have nothing to do with it because he wants to be first. In fact, just so you know, when I come, I'm going to have a conversation with Diotrephes. It's like, oh, 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 that wasn't supposed to get public. And not only this, step one, by the way, in this moment of Diotrephes is shutting things off, shutting things down. We're going to think about the principles involved and what's gone wrong in this little section. And part one is shutting down others. Part two is actually saying about others what you ought not say. Gossiping maliciously about us. But he's not satisfied with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers those who would come to teach, and anyone who's in support of them, anyone who steps up and says, well, hey, I kind of would like to listen to the message that they have, what he does is he puts them out of the church. This dude's out in the parking lot finding people who would be supportive of other people and telling them, look, this is the wrong, you got the wrong time, we're not even, you're going to need to go. Because, what? Because he wants to be first. Step one, and, and I just, can I just time out here? This diatrophies dude, pretty full of himself. He wants to be first so bad that he's shutting off the message of John. Step one in this call to try to be first for ourselves is to shut off the care we ought to give somebody else. Step two, turn on malicious conversation. Step three, do everything you can to get supporters of others, those who have not decided I will be first, 
get them out of here. Now, here's the thing. I don't actually believe there's a single person sitting here today or standing here before you who doesn't struggle with wanting to be first. On this planet, in our brokenness, you will be or are being visited by this urge to be first, a whisper in your ear. And some of you are going, nah, and you don't know the inside conversation I have. It's driven by the same thing. Whether it is that you've become cocky, whether it is that I have done everything I can to make sure to shut others down and I'm pretty full of myself, it's a far more common response and result. Many more of us are experiencing it that we are not actually feeling cocky about things. We're acting cocky about things because we feel so bad about ourselves. And that's what happens in this process of trying to be first. Now, John will say, dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And you may, have, you may recall that verse, right? Maybe as a child you memorized this verse, but you probably didn't connect it to Diotrephes. You probably weren't, <laughs> weren't, weren't thinking about his situation of what was going on there. By the way, a little time out. Every once in a while somebody will say to me, oh, so now you're here. That means we're probably not going to have Tim on video now, right? Think about this. What has just been described in 3 John is that the... The voice that's given birth to this congregation, this family, is being cut off by somebody's arrogant desire to be first. In the faith, in our family, we do well to cultivate and honor where we came from. And if we have a scarcity mentality, people better be listening to me. People better not be listening to them. It gives voice to this internal desire. We ought fight back and we imitate what is evil. It doesn't mean everybody. Come on in. Whose turn is it next? We talked about that last time. But I will say this. I will say this. It's clear, I've said it before, one of the very reasons I want to be here is because of the incredible leaders associated with what's going on here at Crosswalk. Some of you are in this room and others are not in this room. It is a part of the power of Christ that we partner well. And if it dawns on you, what kind of an idiot would shut down the voice of the last remaining apostle? I think there's a direct thread to what we're talking about as a family of faith. We will continue to honor where we came from and where we're headed and we will bundle up every bit of what God has given us and do this together. But this is not just about stuff like how this church, how this family runs. This is about how we as individuals experience the world too. Amen. I just want to say, as John urges us, as John communicates with us, look, 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 
you're going to be tempted to imitate evil. What evil thing? To attempt to be first. And it might come out as arrogance and cockiness and blocking people and moving people aside. Or it might flip in your head to this conversation around how you will never be enough. And you are so much less because they have more. Or they look this way. Or, look, look, look. I, I just have this question for you. Do you ever feel, do you ever feel pressure to be special? One of the things I could have asked instead of this phrasing, are you ever on social media? <laughs> you ever looked at your dinner plate and thought, ah, this would definitely not make a good photo. I don't know how to story this situation. Do we have any, do we have any like plastic fruit? Can I, can I load this thing up with something fake? So I can impress someone who is too busy trying to impress someone else who is equally not paying attention as they are not paying attention to me? And we, we roll with this kind of thing and some of us are going, yeah, those young people with their social media. No, no, every one of us. Feel the pull, feel the urge to try to be special. And weirdly amidst this pull to try to demonstrate we are first, we are better than, we are special, often it rolls back on us and we feel actually like less than we actually are. Crazy. I know that not every kind of comparison is a sin. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I would like to suggest to you is that we can so easily fall prey to, a, to the sin of comparison. And when I compare myself to you, I become tempted to stop loving you well. And if the threat becomes large enough... I will engage in malicious behavior. And by the way, we're crafty. We've learned, we've spent time. We got this thing under control. You do not have to just come out and say it. All you have to do is say, hey man, did you hear what, did you hear what this, I mean, what do you think of that? What, I didn't say it. I mean, it's just, and then because I asked the question and you engaged in the conversation, I can go back over here and say, hey, you know what people are saying about so-and-so? <laughs> by the way, if somebody comes up to you and says, you know what people are saying about, and share something expressly negative, be very suspicious, they're one of the people saying the thing. Just trying to find a way to attribute it to somebody else. You know what? You can actually be malicious and tear somebody's character down. I can do it with my eyes. In just the right moment of sarcastic role. There are all sorts of ways that we learn how to not just shut off the love, but turn on the malice. And God would say, through the words of John, don't imitate evil, imitate good. I, I just want to say, you and I are under constant strain over this sense of comparison. 
One of my favorite stories, I don't know exactly if it's because of the names of the characters, one in particular, but in 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's a story that we sometimes sing about, only a boy named David. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And the story of David and Goliath, here he is, it's only this boy, this little guy, I mean, sure, maybe he's a teenager, but he is, he is not the, the one who's in charge, he is often left out, but there's something special going on with this kid, that's nice. In this, in this story that you know well, here's what's going on. You've got two armies that are on plateaus separated by a valley floor. In the midst of that valley floor is a giant who's calling out taunts against the children of God. Now these two armies are about the same size and so they're stuck in a stalemate, not able to figure out what do we do here, but the giant comes down and says, hey look, here's the great news, only one of you has to die. So what I want is somebody to volunteer to come and fight me. You come down here and we'll do winner take all. Whoever wins this little battle, that's who will be taking over all of the army of the other. So they're just stuck there. Every day this giant comes out taunting. And about this point, David arrives. Now he's the water boy in this story. He's bringing water and cheese, some bread to his brothers. One of his brothers will say to him, hey, uh, Davy, I know what's going on here. You're supposed to be attending to other obligations, but you are just skipping out on work. You're not supposed to be here. You need to get home to the little sheep. David, though, provoked by this giant's voice and wondering why God's people are stuck, will find himself in the tent of the king, King Saul, which, incidentally... If you read scripture carefully, you will notice that the Israelites have a giant described as head and shoulders taller than any of his countrymen is their king, Saul. But he's stuck. You don't find him in this story any other place than back in the church offices. <laughs> David wanders in and he says, hey, great news. <clears throat> great Great news. I will fight the giant. (laughs) Okay, this is a problem. But he sticks with it. And he starts telling stories. And he he gives a game plan for what he's going to do. Brooks, next leadership team meeting. And we come with a game plan. Here's what we're going to do. We need to do some renovations. We want to build out. We want to do some stuff. And so here's my plan. Here we go. David goes like this. So look, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. I've been in some bad situations. I was once attacked by a lion. I mean, I'm attacked. You don't understand. By attacked, what I'm saying is the lion, the lion had, he had had leapt up onto me and his paws, I mean, I was, it was over and then God rescued me. Now, there's a bear. Read it. We read this and somehow make it kind of musical in the way that we read this. But the Lord who delivered me from the paw of a lion and the paw of a bear will deliver me from the paw of this giant. See it. Picture it. Okay. Bear. Hey, bear. Boom. All right. I am going to... (laughs) we'll call it attack 
the giant. I'm going to wander out there, and then he will have me in his hand. He only needs one. He will have me in his hand, choking me out. Little bug, here we go, and God will rescue me. Yeah? Let's vote. Let's do this. Yeah? No? We get because we look. Here's the deal: we need new children's spaces, and we have no. I don't know where the money's coming from, and we don't exactly have a, a full plan. In fact, we're going to start out on this thing, and it's going to look like disaster, and it's going to fail. Surely it's going to. I don't have anybody who's with me on this. To just be honest with you, and it's going to be. Uh, well, it's going to look ugly, and then God will step in, and He will rescue this whole zany scenario. Let's vote. In that moment, the giant king says, it seems like the best we've got. (laughs) And David will reject the armor of a person much larger than him and say, no, 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 I got this. Maybe you didn't hear my plan. (laughs) It's gonna look bad. I'm gonna be in deep trouble. And God will rescue me. So I'm just going to go with this stick that I have. And, and, um, and I have some old sandal laces of my oldest brother. Yeah, there's a whole story behind that. But I, I've now I've made it. I'm just going to get some raw. You didn't hear. I'm just going to charge the giant with this stuff. And, and then be about to just face plant. It's going to be like that thing where somebody throws you a pass. And you don't realize the rise in the ground. And you start gator legging it into bam. And you, it's going to be that. And then God. What a great story. Where the least steps up. And by the way, ever after this moment, Saul will forever suffer from the sin of comparison. He will go pretty close to nuts out of what happens in response to this. But here's what we may miss if we're not careful. It's not just Saul who struggles with comparison. Maybe you didn't notice this before as you looked at this story. But this only a boy named David who goes out to the riverbank, he collects some stones in through the air. You know, we sing it, right? Only a boy named David, no, 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 no. Brooke five stones in the air, and the giant came tumbling down. And then there's the part that we don't sing about. And David ran across the river and climbed on the giant's chest, grabbed his sword, cut off his head, and held it up. I don't know exactly why that's not in the children's song. But here's something amazing and a cautionary tale to you and me. Whole thing is ended, essentially. The Israelites will chase battling the whole way, chase the Philistines to their border town that the rough calculations of how far they would be running and chasing and fighting would be about 13 miles. And then the Bible says they ran the 13 miles back to loot the tents. This group of paralyzed followers of God can't even move and a little boy steps up and is about to be crushed by a giant. God steps in and they become marathon runners. And then it's over, and this happens. 
As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner, general of the armies, took him and brought him before Saul. And then did you ever read this part? Did you notice? With David still holding the Philistine's head. Yeah, I can barely see your facial expression, but I can see it. It's like, huh? Dude, put down the head. David will not let go of the head. Why? Because he went from being only a boy named David to the guy with Goliath's head. Yeah, you wouldn't know it. If I don't have the head, you don't know it because I'm just a little guy. You wouldn't know it because I'm just here with my shoelace and my stick. But if I hold the head of Goliath, then you know, then you know. He will take that head home with him and put it on the family gate so that you can't pass by his home without knowing he's the man, right? He's the guy. No, it's not just Saul who struggles with wanting to be first. It's David too. It's you. It's me. And when we succumb to this battle of wanting to be first, sometimes it comes in the kind of haunting internal conversations that says we are less than what God actually says we are. And sometimes by making us step in front of Jesus himself to be first in line, and you do not want to be first in line, cutting in front of the one who will raise you up to become your own God, dependent on your power over the resurrection. Now, you know, it's eight verses from the end of this battle, and we hear it. The soldiers walking home that day, they're traveling through little towns, and as they come to each town, the, the message had already gone through the town. So that everywhere they would go, the women would flood the streets, and they would be dancing, and they'd be singing a very specific song. And here's the song. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. No longer only a boy named David. Now it's, he's the one. And God doesn't even have a line in the song. By the way, it's not just us as individuals. We can want to be first as an organization, as a church family. Oh, you know what? We, let me just tell you some of the ways we do so much better than some of those people. I, did you hear? Did you hear? Somebody was telling me about what happened when they went to this church. And, oh, my goodness. Well, thank goodness I would never. Because we, <laughs> we, we love well. I mean, we're the first in loving well. Thank goodness we're here. We will save you. No. 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 This isn't a song about how many we have slain. It's a song about the one who will never let us go 
and he deserves to be first. Battle it back, lay claim to a Jesus. Who knows our struggle with our self-confidence? He knows your struggle with personal pride. He understands how it feels. And he is a rescue for your life. John would say, oh, dear friend, imitate what is good. Line up behind the Jesus who laid down his life for you. I hope, I hope you know him. If you don't, Lean in. Lean in. Walk beside. Hopefully for our family here, we have found that there is nothing, nothing, nothing better than when Jesus comes first. Thank you for joining us for this teaching. Consider hitting the subscribe button to stay tuned for next week. If you'd like to support Crosswalk Chattanooga, go to crosswalkvillage.com slash Chattanooga and click the Give button at the far right of the ribbon at the top. Notice the campus drop-down menu and select Chattanooga. And if you'd like to come and worship with us on a Saturday morning, we would love that. When you do, please say hi to me. I'd love to learn your name.